Well, today we are beginning a brand new series. We're taking a, a break from the book of John. Uh, we figure just kind of running that through for two years straight, you kind of deserve a break every now and again. Don't worry, next month we'll be right back in John. For some of you who are, uh, you know, type A personality, you're kind of like, but the book is not done, we can't stop now. All right, just pause. Uh, for those of us with a different personality, we need a rest every once in a while. And so this month, we're actually walking through a series that we have t entitled Conspiracy. Very timely series, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah? Conspiracy. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when it, when it comes to the word conspiracy, there's a lot of conspiracy surrounding even the development of the word conspiracy. Some people think that the word conspiracy was actually put together by the government to intentionally alienate people who had ideas that might counter uh, what the government was talking about or what they were trying to, to get out or, or maybe a larger organization or some nefarious individuals around the world, right? However you look at it, conspiracy brings up a lot of different emotions and thoughts and puts you in a different mental state. But as it pertains to conspiracy and God's word, I want you to know that there is, and we're going to jump right into it today because I want to make good use of our time in the next 24 minutes and 31 seconds, okay? There is, and I would write this down, there is a conspiracy today for your heart and a conspiracy today for your mind. Now, this is pertaining to all of us. You know, maybe this is your first time to church, and you're like, all right, that building thing was a little heavy. I'm still here, but uh, this is heavy too. I want you to know that whether you are a follower of Jesus or whether you are somebody who does not classify yourself as a follower of Jesus, you're just a seeker of truth, right? Or maybe you're just a very spiritual individual. Wherever you are on the entire spectrum of humanity, I want you to know today, first and foremost, get it nice, deep, down inside of your bones, there's a conspiracy for you. There's a conspiracy for your heart. There's a conspiracy for your mind. There is a battle for your soul that is taking place in this exact moment. And, and I would say when we think about the word conspiracy as it pertains to our hearts and as our minds, by the way, take some notes today. We're a church that worships in spirit and in, and in truth. We talk about conspiracy, and here's the key point, right? And then we're going to jump into our text for today. It all boils down to this word, idolatry. When we talk about our heart, when we talk about our mind, when we talk about emotions and, and even intimacy, all these things revolve around this word idolatry. Now, don't count yourself out. I know most likely you have not carved some weird statue of some animal and hidden it in a closet and bow down and maybe sacrifice bugs to it or something. I don't know, right? That's very odd. If you do that, uh, maybe we could get you into some help, you know, like, but, but here's the deal. You might think, well, I'm not an idol worshiper because I don't do that stuff. But that's not just what idolatry is. Idolatry comes in, in many forms. There's a possibility that you have, that we have, that I have been walking in some sort of idolatry and not even know it, known it, because it has come to us with a hidden agenda. In a conspiratorial way, it has snuck into our house. You know, scripture says that sin is crouching at our, our door. The understanding is that if we even open that door a crack, sin is going to jump in, seize us, take advantage of us. And this is exactly what this battle for our heart, for our soul, for our mind is going to do. So maybe we are idol worshipers not even knowing we're worshiping idols. 
Here's one thing I can definitely tell you about people. We are designed to be worshipers. Do you know that? It is encoded and embedded in our DNA. It's not something that has evolved, but it is rather something that has been designed. We have been designed to worship. Now, I would, I would say from a, biblical world, from a biblical worldview, from a biblical perspective, we are designed to worship and bring glory to God the Father. Amen? Would you agree with that? Amen. We are designed that way. But the fact of the matter is you will worship something. Whether it's God, whether it's something else, we as people innately are designed to worship. And so we will worship. The question is, what is it that we will worship? So let's bring it to the surface, because how do we discover what we're worshiping? Here's a couple questions, and I would encourage you, we're going to kind of blast through these a little bit. Go back on the podcast and kind of listen for these if you can't get them down fast enough. But here's a couple questions that should bring to the surface what it is that we might be worshiping. Number one, first question, in identifying worship and identifying idolatry. Number one, the question is this, what disappoints me the most? What disappoints me the most? Now you say, why is that important? Well, I'll tell you, whatever disappoints you the most speaks to where you place your hope. What is it that you place your hope in? You can find that when you discover what disappoints you the most. Number two, what do I sacrifice the most time and money for? Even mental real estate. What do I sacrifice time and money for? See, that speaks to where you place your energy. Not just physical, but emotional and mental. Question number three, where do I go to for comfort? Where do I go to to feel good? Where do I go to to feel comforted? Where, where do I go to to, to proverbial, uh, get those big proverbially? Is that the word? Let's just skip that part. All right. Where, where metaphorically I have those big arms wrap around me. Where do I get my, my comfort? That speaks to where you place your emotions. Number four, what is it that I worry about? Do I worry about finances the most? Do I worry about money the most? Do I worry about war the most? Do I worry about my walk with Christ the most? Do I worry about my kids the most? What do I worry about the most? That speaks to where we place our focus. And lastly, whose encouragement matters the most to me? Whose encouragement matters the most to me? See, this is gonna speak to where you place your intimacy. Number one, what disappoints me the most? What do I sacrifice time and money for the most? Where do I go to for comfort? What do I worry about? And what, whose encouragement matters to me the most? See, hope, energy, emotions, intimacy, these are all, listen now, matters of the heart. Are you with me on that? Yes? They're all matters of the heart. And I want you to be sure that there is a conspiracy for your heart today. There is a hidden agenda. There is a under-the-surface movement. There is a battle. Uh, Paul tells us that we do not fight against flesh and blood and bone, but rather the battle that we fight against is with darkness. Darkness, not of this world. Rulers and authorities, not of this world. Be clear that regardless of what you are seeing on the surface, on the news, on your Twitter, whatever it is that is bubbling out into the social structure and context is not, listen to me now, is not the real battle. It's not the real battle. 
It looks like the real battle. It sounds like the real battle. It feels like the real battle. But the real battle for you is taking place in here. And all of the stuff around you is just stuff to get you off track. Everything that you're seeing is just convoluting internally the battle that is taking place in here. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about a couple specific conspiracies for us today. We're going to begin with the conspiracy, write this down, the conspiracy of pleasure. Look at your neighbor and say pleasure. Some of you felt awkward doing that. That's Okay. So turn to your other neighbor that you totally disregarded the first time and now feel even more awkward. Just say pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Isn't it funny in church we feel bad saying the word pleasure? Isn't that funny? We're literally in a movie theater having church and we feel bad saying the word pleasure. I think it's funny. In fact, let's push push this a little bit more, make it as awkward as possible. When I say the word pleasure, please don't scream this out. When I say the word pleasure, what comes to mind? For some of you, let me, let me answer that question quickly before you do. Um, for some of you, it might be a day at the beach. Ah, oh, pleasurable, right? For some of you, uh, you know, especially stay-at-home moms, it might just be sleep, uh, uninterrupted sleep. Let's add that in, right? Maybe it's napping. Maybe it's your physical encounter with your spouse. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just watching Ohio State dominate sports. I don't know. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Uh, we all do have something that comes to mind when we hear the word pleasure. As followers of Christ, though, sometimes we think that's a bad thing. Pleasure is not a bad thing. Can I get an amen on that? Come on. Pleasure is not a bad thing. I think oftentimes we have this view of God like he is some very distant, very medical, very sterile, you know, like just very, I don't know, offhanded, kind of like, I don't know, God who is very distant and he does not condone fun. You know, God is not fun. We're talking about God. We're talking serious. He doesn't condone a good time. In fact, if we're having a good time in church, we're probably not having church at all, right? It's just quite the opposite. Can I just tell you who created pleasure? God. Not only did God create pleasure, God created your body in a way that it receives pleasure and outputs pleasure to others. Your words, the jokes you tell, your mind, the way that you come up with funny things, all the dad jokes that your kids can't wait to tell you. Those are pleasurable, most of the time, things, right? Those are things that God has created. In fact, I can, just in an effort, I can show you that God is pro-pleasure. Three items that God created. Number one, God created sleep. Very pleasurable, Number two, God created sex, especially in the context of marriage. Very pleasurable. And then number three, probably the biggest one of all, God created bacon. He did. You say, well, God didn't create bacon. He made pigs. He did. And then he gave us the forethought to create fire and take a pig and put it over and pull that off and discover the beautiful goodness of bacon. Amen? God is not anti-pleasure. God is pro-pleasure. He 100% is, and I think it's important. But here's the point. Here's where the problem begins. The conspiracy of pleasure often begins as good gifts from the Lord. The conspiracy of pleasure begins with the good gifts that God has given to us. Food, entertainment, sex, relaxation, bacon. These things are not sinful They are good things that God has given us out of his love. Listen now. But too often, we find that we begin living 
for those pleasurable items. It's what begins to motivate us to get out of bed in the morning. It is the thing that begins to motivate us to go to work. It's what our relationships, our time, our money often begin to revolve around. And without realizing, listen now, we find that we are worshiping pleasure rather than the God who created pleasure. We begin worshiping pleasure rather than the God who has given us the good gifts. And we replace, listen now, the creator with the created And here's where the conspiracy of pleasure comes in. Here's where the idolatry begins. When we begin worshiping the created things over the creator who created the things, then we can know for sure that we are living a lifestyle of idolatry and that we have fallen victim to the conspiracy of pleasure. Now, I want to get to our text today. It's found in the book of 1 Kings. We're going Old Testament today. Let me hear you say Old Testament. When you say Old Testament, you got to say it a little deeper, a little more guttural, right? Because it's just primal. It's, it's Old Testament. And a lot of times we're scared to read from the Old Testament because we can't pronounce the names. But we're going to do our best anyway today, okay? And uh, I think it's a good text. In fact, this should be a very familiar passage. I love this passage. It, it's awesome. Look at this. In 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29, we're going to le- read through it in an abbreviated way. It says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, let me hear you say Ahab. Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord. Watch this now. More than all those who were before him. More than all of those who were before him. This was a bad king, not a good man. Now, here's some context. Context. Ahab married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel, not a good Not a good woman, not a good woman at all. She's the princess of the Sidonians. She set up an altar in the temple that was previously given to God, God the Father. She set up her own temple to Baal, who was a god that they worshiped. Baal was said to have have power and be in control of weather, things like rain, things like uh, the sun, uh, things like even, even winter, cold, warmth. And so these were all things that affected the crops of people that were living, right? And so what Jezebel did was she came into the temple that was made for the one and only God, for Yahweh, and she set up her own temple inside. She killed off the prophets of God, God the Father, and she instituted her own prophets. And so now Baal worship was taking place. You're like, okay, that sounds bad, but how bad was it? Bad enough that they would sacrifice their own children before this God, lowercase g, but God nonetheless. They would sacrifice their infants, They would perform certain rituals and acts that were volatile in front of this statue within this temple. It was a very dark period of time. It was very dark. It was very awful. It was very debased. And so it's very interesting when we read this passage because if you jump ahead in chapter 17, God sends one of his own prophets named Elijah. Let me hear you say Elijah. Elijah, good dude. This guy's awesome. He sends Elijah into this country to confront Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, Elijah says, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Let's catch you up. 
God sends Elijah to go prophesy to, to these individuals, to the king and the queen of the country. And he said, hey, I'm going to let you know, as the Lord God lives, he's going to close up the heavens. And I'm bringing famine and I'm bringing drought. God, because of what you have done, because you have taken the good that he created and you have flipped it and you've begun worshiping the created rather than the creator, you've set up this, this institute, this temple for this false God. Listen, it's not going to rain anymore. And that's going to be a problem because you're not going to get your crops and you're not going to get your food and you're going to starve. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Why was it that God chose to use Elijah to prophesy about no rain? It's very specific, and this is why God is one of the reasons God's so awesome. He was attacking the very thing that they were worshiping. They were worshiping a, quote, God who had power over weather. And so what did God do? He stepped in and said, oh, your God controls the weather? I'm going to make it so it don't rain. And let's see who the better God is. Let's see who the stronger God is. Let's see what happens when the heavens are shut up. And they were shut up indeed. He was withholding something. He was literally withholding the rain. And you see what God is doing. He is withholding his blessing in the very area where people had put a God in the place of God. Listen, let me say that one more time. God was withholding his blessing because people had substituted a false god in the place where the real god should have actually have been. Now, does that sound familiar to us at all in our own lives? How often do we find ourselves praying that God would bless an area of our life, not realizing that we have already made that area of our life an idol? Now, let me just ask you a question. Why would God ever bless an area of your life that you have deemed more important than him? And yet we do that, don't we? Let's be honest. We pray for more finances, and yet we don't steward the finances we have. We pray for better relationships, and yet we don't steward the relationships we have. We pray for more influence, and yet we use our platform and our influence for things that are not just not like Jesus, but are actually anti-biblical. We pray for this, we pray for that, and we wonder why God doesn't bless us in those areas. I'll tell you why. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, God's not going to bless his competition, as if there were competition for God. But you need to understand, as it pertains to pleasure and this conspiracy and the seat of God, God will not bless his competition. Uh, I believe it was last year, maybe a couple years ago, we got our kids uh, uh, for Christmas a new video game system. We got them a Switch, a Nintendo Switch. And, and, and the goal was, we'll get them that one because it's more family friendly and, and I'll be able to play with them and you know, we'll be able to like move around and stuff. I don't know. That's how I justified it to my wife. And, uh, but... but it's, it's interesting because it's supposed to, it was meant to be like this family thing that we did. And very quickly I realized this isn't like a family thing. Like our kids kind of started fighting over it, you know what I mean? And then I'd come in and be like, hey guys, dad's home. And they'd be like, hey dad, you know what I mean? I'm like, hey, I'm, hey guys, I'm home. And they'd be like, yeah, we heard you dad. Can you not be loud? We're playing. You know what I mean? And, and there arose inside of me an emotion like, hey, I bought that for you. Hey, I'm the one who gave that to you. 
That came from me. Now, I know it came from somewhere in Japan, but that actually came from me. I bought that. I used the finances that I have worked for to purchase that for you, not just for your pleasure, but so that that could be something that we enjoy together. And now you have taken that and you have put it over top of me as something in priority. So if my kids in that moment come to me and say, hey, Dad, can we get some new games for this? What do you think my answer will be? No, not a chance. Well, why not? It'd be fun. I'm sure it would be fun. Well, why not? Because when I'm around and that's around, you don't even acknowledge me. When that's around and I'm around, you don't even say hi. When that's around and I'm around, you would rather be with that than me. So no, I'm not going to give you anything more pertaining to that. If anything, I'm going to remove that so that you are forced to just spend time with me. I'm going to take that from your life. That thing that I gave to you to give, to, to give you pleasure, I'm going to remove that from your life so that you are forced to look at me so that you are forced to spend time with me. When we place the gift over the giver, don't expect the giver to bless it. Listen now, this will change your life. When you begin to place the gift over the giver, don't expect the giver to bless it. Don't expect God to bless his his competition. He's just not going to do it. For some of us, you've been praying that God would bless your finances, but you've, in essence, bound God's hand of blessing because you literally have made the pleasure of having money more important than the priority and privilege of knowing God at all. And you wonder why God won't give you more. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't a health and wealth. I'm not saying you spend more time in your Bible and God's gonna give you more money. It's probably gonna be the opposite. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that when we begin to place the gift over the giver, the created over the creator, we are demonstrating that we have fallen prey to the conspiracy of pleasure. So let's just, just jump right back in. Drought is in full effect. Elijah comes to the king and basically sets up a, a cage match between God the Father and the false prophet Baal. He says this in chapter 18. Look at this in verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all, the children, uh, all Israel to, to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, a false god, who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the, Lord God, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Watch now. And the people did not answer him a word. Elijah's coming to the people and he says, hey, what are you doing? If God is God, then follow him. If you believe that Baal is God, then follow him. And the people didn't answer at all. Why did the people have nothing to say? I'll tell you why. Because it's not that they minded God, the God of Israel. They, they just, they wanted both. They wanted the blessings from God the Father, but they also wanted the blessings from God about all. They wanted both. They wanted their false God, and they wanted their Yahweh. They wanted their fake God, and they wanted their real God. They wanted Baal. They would not have been silent. If they wanted God, they would not have been silent because they wanted both. They were silent. They didn't want to be forced to choose. Can I just be very, very (laughs) direct today? We don't want to choose in our lives who we're going to follow. We think, quite honestly, oftentimes all of us think, that God the Father, the creator of all that is, is content 
with our leftovers. In fact, we might have even been trained that God accepts our leftovers gleefully. Well, God, what more do you want? I went to church this week. Well, God, what more do you want? I listened to some Christian music on the way into work. Well, God, I I prayed before most of my meals this week. What more do you want? God wants to. I'll be as specific as possible. God does not, God, not only does God just not want your leftovers, God demands to be the main course. God demands to be front and center in every single moment of your life. God demands, deserves to be the forefront thought in all of your decision making, be it financial, be it family planning, be it, be it the way that you go out and, and, and plan out the rest of your life, your career, the way you speak, the things you look, out, look at and watch and talk. And the fact of the matter is, we as a Christian culture, we have gotten to a place where those lines have gotten so blurred and we've gotten so far away from being specifically God-centered that now just when we do the bare minimum, we think we're succeeding, but we're still not. We're not. Not only will God not bless his competition, God shares his throne with nothing and no one. He will not share his throne with anything. He will not share his throne with anyone. And why would he? Why should he? He is God, after all. He is the creator He is the one who looked into the darkness and spoke the world into into existence. He is the one who reached down into the dirt that he himself created and breathed life into it. Why would he share his throne with anyone? Why would he share his seat with anyone? So the stage has been sent. Basically, a war is going to be fought between Baal and the one true God, Yahweh. All the high priests and prophets gather together on Mount Carmel with thousands of witnesses. We have Baal, the God of weather, and we have Yahweh, the God of gods. Let's see what happens in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. Put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them. (laughs) I, I like Elijah. I like him. He began to mock them, saying, Hey, cry louder. He's God. Maybe he's musing or he's relieving himself. Relieving himself in that passage means what you think relieving himself in that passage means. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Just take yourself really quickly to this scene. This is crazy. They're on this mountain. There's a, there's a bull that's getting ready to be sacrificed. They're asking for their God to, to bring fire down from the heavens to consume this bull. They're cutting themselves. They're screaming. They're chanting. They're singing. They're working themselves up into a frenzy. And just here's Elijah, just with a toothpick in his mouth, just like leaning up against the wall like, hey, maybe he's not around, guys. Maybe you ought to try harder. You know, that's the picture I have of Elijah. Hey, maybe he's in the bathroom. Have you thought about that before? Maybe he's on a journey. Did he go on vacation? I don't know. Maybe just try louder, right? And these people are whipping themselves up into a frenzy. They're cutting themselves. They're they're hurting themselves. They're they're hurting each other. How is this relevant to today? 
It's not like, I mean, we read this and we feel so far removed. It's not like any of us would ever bleed for one of our gods, would we? We'd never bleed for our TV show. We never bleed for our money. We never bleed for that new home. Oh, yes, we would, and we do. We bleed for it, don't we? We sacrifice our families. We sacrifice our integrity. We sacrifice our time with God. We bleed for the things that we desire. We bleed for the things that we want. We will bleed for our idols. Now, it may not be literal blood, but we will sacrifice everything in an attempt to get that pleasurable thing. Have you ever sacrificed a relationship? I'm sorry, have you ever sacrificed uh, a relationship for, for maybe a TV show? Have you ever sacrificed uh, time with your children for, for, I don't know, a video game? Some of us, we've sacrificed our marriages for money. We've sacrificed our relationship with God for much smaller things. Whatever we give first place in our heart, if it's not God, it will always demand more, demand more, and demand more. And this is how a conspiracy works. It gets in deep, and it enmeshes inside of us, and it begins to demand more and more and more and more. Look at this in verse 29. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no, no, one paid attention. Uh, no one paid attention. Now the good stuff. Elijah steps forward. We're gonna close with this. Watch this now. Elijah steps forward. After people have been crying and cutting and gnashing out all day to this false God, Elijah steps forward. In verse 36, we read this. The prayer that Elijah offers to God. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Verse 38, watch what happens. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Here's the one thing I want you to know about this portion of scripture. This is important now as we close. God will always respond when we worship him and him alone. You don't have to wonder if he'll respond. He will. But he wants those idols removed, and you can remove them, or he will remove them, but they must be removed. The conspiracy of pleasure says you can have both. You can be a follower of Christ and live out pleasure in, in very unchristlike manners. God says, no, you can't. I'm not going to share my throne with anyone or anything. Live for me. Walk with me. The conspiracy of pleasure tells us that we can get too far from God and that he won't accept us anymore. That's the battle of our heart. That's the battle of our mind. And I want you to know right now, in this moment, you can choose to respond to God with worship and worship him and him alone, and he will respond to you. God desires you. God loves you. He created you. 
He wants you. He longs for you. But even with all of that, you must understand that if you place a God in front of the God, the one true God, he will withhold his blessing, his presence from you. From you. The lie, the conspiracy says that God just wants to be worshipped. And it really doesn't matter in what order you do it. But my friends, do not fall for that lie. God demands everything. The forefront, the center, the all-encompassing nature of our lives. He wants it all, he demands it all, and he deserves it all. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray today. Let's take a moment and just respond to God as he's working and his spirit is working in us. I want to give you something to think about as we close today. The center of God's will may not be the safest place, but it is the best place. It may not be the safest place, but it is the best place. You say, well, how can I know God's will? It begins with us removing the idols from our life. The conspiracy of pleasure would tell you that you can keep those things right on the shelf next to God the Father, and that's not true. Right now, I want you to take a moment to clean your heart, repent, and just acknowledge the idols that are in our life right now. We all have them. Right now, I ask you, whether you're here in person or just whether you're joining us online, would you take a moment to pray? What idols are in your life today? Acknowledge them before a holy God. Ask him to take those from you and watch how he begins to respond to you in love.